Hey, hey, all you lovely people out there. You've got a lot going on in your day with big dreams and big goals for your world. Are you ready to talk some shizzle and learn some shizzle from leading entrepreneurs, changemakers, coaches, and overall interesting people who like to shake things up? I'm your host, Taylor Shanklin, CEO and founder of Creative Shizzle, and I am stoked to bring you a fresh episode of Talking Shizzle today. This show is all about helping you think differently so that you can grow. Talking Shizzle is brought to you by our team at Creative Shizzle, where we help businesses, entrepreneurs, and social good innovators make amazing marketing shizzle happen. Check us out on the web at creativeshizzle.com. Now, let's talk some shizzle. We are back, folks, with a new episode of Talking Shizzle, where we're going to talk all sorts of shizzle with Sean Olds. And I'm excited about this conversation. It's good to have you here. I'm glad things are sunny. Is it snowing again in Colorado? We got our last snow May 21st. We got 18 inches. And the wonderful thing about Colorado Springs is it's gone 36 hours later. He has had more white Mother's Days than he has Christmases. <laughs> so, Well, and we've got William, who we are now calling Bill on the line. We're going to chat about dad jokes and data and all sorts of things, entrepreneur stories today. But let's get into who you are, a little bit about Sean and your entrepreneurial journey and what you're doing these days. Sure. No, Taylor, thank you again. And Bill, Will, it's, uh, it's good, to, good to meet you as well today. Quick background, Taylor, as you know, I studied computer science in college. I went into the Army. I found out I couldn't fall out of airplanes properly, though, so the Army kicked me out. And I went into pretty much pretty quickly the startup world. And my first startup, I was actually a consultant to. And so it was a great experience because I got to ride them from pre-A round to B round to C round to IPO to $7.5 billion valuation to debt spiral and bankruptcy. And it totally gave me the bug and started building companies. I took a small respite after September 11th to return to government service doing counterterrorism work in Southwest Asia and Africa. Uh, but after that respite, came back and started building companies again. Um, but Taylor, as you know, the one consistent thing I also did during that period of time was I've always worked with nonprofits. And so for uh, 25 years, I started literally the week after I graduated college on a youth education-centered nonprofit. For 25 years, I've always focused on youth education. And after the military, worked with several veteran service organizations. And I thought I was done with being an entrepreneur. I met my wife who kind of conditional on me being allowed to do angel investing. I had to go get a real job, as she put it. And I found uh, my, my now co-founder who I'd met way back uh, in the Army and Ranger School who pitched me on the idea of Boodle, which was helping nonprofits by bringing them data science, machine learning, and AI to make their development easier, faster, and more efficient so they could focus on their mission. And when I went back to my wife, kind of tail between my legs to ask her if I could do one more startup, she realized I was merging startups with the nonprofit space, which before that had always been separate. I was going to be able to bring it together. And uh, that's what's brought me on to, we're going on six years now with Boodle. And it's been a, it's been a blast. Let's go back to one of the things we like to talk about on the show sometimes is failures, because we learn a lot from our failures. You mentioned that you couldn't 
fall out of an airplane properly? <laughs> what do you mean? What were you doing? Were you like a parachuter? I mean, I clearly know nothing about this, so that probably was even a dumb way to ask the question. But no, not at all. Tell us, tell us what this period was in your life. I had uh, finished being a platoon leader and was uh, working as a signal officer to an armor battalion in the 82nd Airborne Division, which are are is the only parachute division. There are several other units that have paratroopers in it, um, but this is only division size element and. At the time, there was an aircraft, this was 1998, called the C-17, which is in, in large use today. You saw those evacuating people in Afghanistan, as you saw the news. They're a very large cargo airplane, but they were being tested at the time for their ability to have paratroopers jump out of them. And my unit got voluntold to be the first group of human wind dummies to get to go out of the C-17 and my particular jump, there were, I believe, 22 of us injured, and 17 of us uh, ended up being medical out of the military because of it. So expensive way for the Army to learn. I was definitely, I, I went through a period of time where I thought life was over because I grew up in a military household. The word civilian was not my vocabulary. When I graduated from West Point, I knew my entire career path from platoon leader to chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And having to get out of the military and find a job in the private sector was just a shock to me. And I felt like a failure because I always kind of wanted to grow up and be like my father, and that wasn't going to happen. What were some of the things that you did to get over that? If you felt like a failure, you you failed faster. You fell faster. I failed real fast on that one. It was less you than fell real seconds. fast. <laughs> yeah. What was something that you did to get into the mental space you needed to be in, to move forward from that? Uh, a couple of things. One was just being able to get back out and get physical again. I mean, being laid up for a while, taking, you know, when you're 24 at the time and you've been physical your entire life and you can't move, it takes everything away from you. So the ability to just even start basic physical therapy again was refreshing. Beyond that, one of the big things I think I did was just really start to do what people would call networking. I started with friends initially, but then just started to get out and meet people who were in the private sector, military people who had gotten out before and ask them about their journeys. And I talked to a spectrum. I mean, I talked to people who were doing things I would never, ever want to do. Um, I talked to people who were doing things I never thought I could do. And I talked to people who just sounded like they had interesting careers. And that information gathering made it obvious that there were other opportunities out there. The path I had limited myself to was not the only path I could be successful on. Well, good for you. I think a lot of times we learn about ourselves in those moments of like extreme, I don't even know what to call it. Like where you, it's just, you have a circumstance, something happens and it's just jarring. And yeah, I've had those moments myself. So let's talk a little bit about, okay, you went a couple of startups. How, how many did you do? Before Boodle... So I did two in the private sector before I went back into government. And then after government, I went overseas and did another one over there. And then did a fourth one overseas and then started Google. What was it? Okay, so you had this connection with the nonprofit space and startup life coming together. What was it in particular about Boodle where you're like, okay, this is the one, this is the idea. And then tell us what Boodle is for people who don't know. Sure. It was one of those 
like the guy who discovered penicillin. Oh, wow, this thing is killing off all these diseases I want to get rid of. And it's always been a pain to me. As a board member, you kind of show up for your board meetings, you do what you can, you add value, but you've got a life going on. And so in the back of my mind, I'd always been very frustrated with how ineffective and inefficient fundraising was in the nonprofit space, but just really didn't contemplate how I could fix that. Or, you know, I'd figure out how to fix it on a small scale with my little nonprofit, but not necessarily an aggregate. And it wasn't until my co-founder, France, who had had a very bad experience with a uh, particularly large fundraising campaign he was doing for a university, came and said, look, we're both data-driven people. We're both technology people. There's got to be a better way to do this. And starting out, the, you know, the analogy I use today is we're, we're sitting on, on Zencaster, but people have been using Zoom and Google Meets. And I would bet you a really good bottle of wine and a steak dinner that 90% of the people you've been on Zoom with could not explain to you how video over IP works. But they don't have to because Zoom made it the press of a button. And that's what France and I wanted to do from the very beginning was figure out a way to take data science, machine learning, and ultimately artificial intelligence and make it so the development team didn't need to learn how to code. They didn't need to go hire computer scientists. They could press a button and capitalize on all of that and then do what they're good at, which is engaging the donor. And we always say the best AI team is the human machine team because the machine is going to take what would take you or I weeks, if not months to do, and it's going to compress it down to hours. But what the machine could never do is call Will up and when Will answers the phone and the machine says, hey, Will, how are you doing? And Will says, oh, my wife's down with COVID. My dad just broke his leg and I've got this huge board meeting. Well, the machine's going to go, Will's a good potential donor. I need to ask for money. And the machine's going to blow it. Whereas the good development director is going to have empathy and say, hey, Will, that's I'm really sorry to hear that. Is there anything you need help with? And is going to make a note, hey, I need to check back in two weeks to make sure everything's going well with Will. And then maybe check back in a month and actually ask for that donation. And so that human machine team becomes much more empowering and it allows the nonprofit to actually focus on what they need to be, which is their mission. Let's break down a couple of terms, if that's cool with you. And then we'll pause and we'll do a dad joke. But before (laughs) that, so you mentioned a couple of things, maybe for people who are listening who aren't in the nonprofit world, but maybe they're entrepreneurs or tech people. You mentioned... So the development team doesn't have to, you know, hire a develop. By development, we mean the fundraising team, the people who work at the nonprofit who go off and find the money to source the impact, right? So like to make to make it happen. But you mentioned a few terms that I think oftentimes people probably don't really understand the difference between. You said data science, you said machine learning, and you said AI. Can we break down those terms for people? Like, talk to me like I'm five, Sean, and tell me what those things mean, how they work together, how they're different. And let's start with data science. Easy to do. And, you know, my son is about to turn four, and we've been reading AI, machine learning, and data science to him since he was three. So I've got a great book for you. Now, in all sincerity, actually, I'm going to start the other direction, if you don't mind, because artificial intelligence is the umbrella that everything kind of sits under. And within artificial intelligence, there are various branches. Machine learning is one of those branches. Machine learning is this just that. It's the ability of a machine to learn. But at the end of the day, the machine's got to be programmed. It's got to be taught how to learn. So you see learning going on in a variety of different areas. One of the big areas learning happens 
that we see is facial recognition. For those of you who you know use your phones to use face ID so you don't have to punch in a code, for people who are in various areas where their security features are used as they walk in, those faces are being recognized because the machine has been taught how to recognize those faces. A subset of that is the machine learning where that, that machine is constantly learning on faces, on other things that come in. And then below that is data science. So data science is the art of understanding the data that you have in front of you, how you use it, what it can be used for, and then really getting in. I just got back from speaking at the Giving Institute where we talked about bias in data. Now, a lot of people hear the word bias and they think it's always malicious. They've seen, you know, going back to the facial recognition algorithms where you've seen, I'm sure, in the stories where some of the ones used by police forces don't recognize black people as well as they do, say, white people. Well, that's because there was an over-teaching on white faces and very little black faces or even Asian faces were used. And so those are not recognized as well. Now, it wasn't necessarily done maliciously. It was that was the data set people were familiar with. There's actually a really good story about how the first artificial heart was designed by a group of male doctors. And so it was built for a male. And when they were successful, they realized it actually couldn't be put in a female body because it didn't work because it was designed by men. There was no input from a woman doctor in, in, the, original, in the original design. And so these biases are, are sometimes just oversights that we need to be more cognizant of. And that's the art of data science is being able to look at your data, understand what's there, and then be able to build it up properly so you work out the biases and allow the machine to take in really good data that it can then make really good conclusions from. Interesting about the heart. That's see, I could stuff. go, you know, say some joke about, see, women, we really got it all together. More, you know, <laughs> enough with the men. No, <laughs> Interesting. Okay, thank you for breaking that down. I think it's important because a lot of times, like, we can get technical and we can say all these words that maybe, you know, I want to make sure, like, we give context for our audience about what these things mean when we're talking about it. Now let's go a little bit deeper. Now that we've got a good understanding from you, let's go a little bit deeper on how you're actually using these kinds of technologies to help that person who's at my organization and trying to find the right people who want to be involved and give. How does it all come together and start to actually do the work every single day to help those people in their job? One of the big things is most of us are just not using a resource we have at our, at our fingertips, and that's the data we have in front of us. And a lot of nonprofits think, well, I don't have enough data to really help out. And, and that's where we go back to the art of data science. When we built the Boodle platform, one of the big things we did was knowing that nonprofits had limited data, we required a nonprofit to only have to give us a name and an email address. And then what we can do from that is we can perform the identity resolution to find out that it's the Taylor Shanklin that lives in North Carolina and not the Taylor Shanklin that lives in San Diego, California. And then we can enrich her along with the cohort of other donors she belongs to with hundreds, if not thousands of data points. And so now organizations are no longer dependent on having gathered their own data. They can leverage tools that are out there to bring in other data about people they have in their database. And when you ask, what does that do? How does that empower them? One of our favorite campaigns to run is what we call a hidden gems campaign. So we're convinced that in your email newsletter list, in your low donor list, 
in the variety of lists that you have out there, there are really good donors that you want more of. And so last year we ran with a, an organization. They gave us their 850 major gift donors. We went through that enrichment process I talked to you about, which a human just couldn't go through and be able to do that on their own. The machine's able to. And then we built a bespoke model for what their best major gift donor looks like. So not what a generic philanthropic major gift donor looks like, but what this charity's major gift donor looks like. And then we overlaid it on top of 2,000 people who had donated less than $100. We were able to give them a dozen names of people we said, these people look like your best major gift donors. And the very first person they called made a $20,000 donation. The only thing they were upset about is that person had been donating $100 a year for eight years. And it had just never been approached and asked properly. And so when you ask, what can this do? This in minutes, and, and literally the process that development director went through took her less than three minutes of just filtering and being able to say, these are the 12 names I need to call, and then having the development team reach out and call them. And so before, for a person, for a team to sit down and sift through 2,000 names, if they could even really bring the data together and bear to figure out who's there, would have taken them months to do, and they were able to do it in minutes. Yeah, because a lot of times, like, they're literally just looking at Excel spreadsheets of, like, a bunch of names. And it's like, I don't know, you know, how am I supposed to be able to tell Sally from Harry, you know? <laughs> Those are the first names that came to mind. <laughs> and when Matt Harry was Sally, he made a big gift and everybody was happy, you know? <laughs> Throwing darts at a wall when you don't even know where your target's at. Yeah, it's tough to do. That's really cool, though. It's commendable. Now we're going to go have you fact check all of this stuff that Shauna's saying. Well, That's right, for sure. That whole heart <laughs> thing, I don't know. Like, go, Let's go fact check that one. Um, <laughs> and if you can't find it, I can update Wikipedia so you can find it. <laughs> yeah. How convenient. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about you and I were discussing this concept of micro campaign. So that's... Uh, the the hidden gems that's that's kind of one way to go about this then there are also some micro campaigns that you've been finding a lot of success with how do those work what is that yeah and, and just stepping back from it i mean one of the fun things about the micro campaigns is it was truly part of the entrepreneurial journey you know one of the big things entrepreneurs will fail at is they're convinced their product is so right and they go tell organizations, hey, you just need to shove yourself into the square hole. I don't care that you're a circular organization. And they fail because of it. We went out with what we thought was an amazing product. We had had a lot of good feedback from people. But what we realized very quickly was last year when nonprofits were doing their budgets, no one said, oh, by the way, make sure we put $5,000 in the budget for AI and predictive analytics. And so we were talking with organizations who liked what we were doing, but they didn't have the budget. They didn't have the, the time built in for it. What everybody did do last year is everybody said, hey, don't forget to put $1,000 a month in for marketing. We need to be doing our digital ads on Facebook or LinkedIn or, or banner ads. And so organizations already had money allocated for that. And they always want to optimize that money. They always want to do the best they can do. And so what we figured out, our, my chief data officer is a very brilliant woman. And um, we had gone through the exercise to build our platform of mapping all 240 million Americans. And what she said is, hey, Sean, instead of taking this organization and building their, their major gift model and then applying it to their donor set, why don't we take their model and apply it to our database of 240 million Americans? And now what we can tell them, number one, is we can tell them there are 
8.6 million Americans in the country that look exactly like your best donors. And oh, by the way, we can rank order them and give you 5,000, 10,000, 25,000 to be able to then market to either digitally by phone or direct mail. And as you said, Taylor, the results have been phenomenal. We had a uh, university last month. They wanted to raise for a cause from non-alumni donors. And so they had given the, the machine 1,500 of their non-alumni donors. They built a model of what their good non-alumni donors look like. We overlaid that on the 240 million Americans. We gave them 10,000 leads. They spent $2,750 for the leads and the advertising. And at the end of four weeks, they picked up 58 new donors and $34,000. And so these micro campaigns, four-week campaigns, they can do this every month now with very limited effort by their development team to go out and do it. It's where things get creepy, but good, you know? (laughs) The theory though, Taylor, is if we're doing our job right, we're delivering to you ads that matter. So back in last year, my sister sent me a women's spa that she wanted a birthday present to. So trying to be a good big brother, you get on there, you spend about 10, 15 minutes picking the right package, send it out. For the next 30 days, I get women's spas ad on every web browser that I open. And it's a total waste of money and kind of frustrating to me. If we're doing our job right, we're delivering to you an ad for something, whether you know the organization exists or not, you look like the other donors that are in there. You look like the people who have an affinity towards that cause. So hopefully, while yes, maybe a little creepy, there's a lot of data out there that's being used in far creepier ways. We're hoping we're doing it as as AI for good. AI for good. That sounds better than creepy for good. Uh, (laughs) I think the machine needs a name. And his name is Creeper or something like that. We call the machine Boodle. Call it Boodle. That's what I thought. The machine is Boodle. Actually, it's funny. I've I've got a story. You mentioned the Taylor Shanklin in North Carolina versus the Taylor Shanklin in California. So I get a call one day from this number in Asheville. And it's the UPS store. And they're like, hey, we have a package for Taylor Shanklin. I'm like, is this one yours? I'm like, no. But there's another Taylor Shanklin in the Asheville area. And I know this because I, I, you know, like you go Google yourself sometimes. And then one day I randomly find out, like, partly I Google myself to see, are there any other Taylor Shanklins out there? What are they doing and who are they? I don't know. Maybe I'm weird. Um, But I find this guy who lives in my like same area and he's like a physical therapist or something. So it was funny. And he, the guy at the UPS store was like, okay, yeah, yeah. We're going to try you first. We had his number two. We'll go call him. I'm like, it it must be his, you know, because... (laughs) There aren't a lot of Taylor Franklins in the world. And it's funny to me that I found one that I'm like, he's in my area. I need to find him on Facebook or something and be like, do you want to have coffee sometime? (laughs) (laughs) Just to say we did it. (laughs) You you are the only Taylor Shanklin I have ever met. And for the second one to be in the same zip code is amazing. Weird, right? I know. I thought that was strange. Yeah. Uh, we got a couple of kind of lightning round questions we like to do at the end. Okay. So I'd like to ask you just kind of rapid fire. First thing that comes to your mind. All right. What should every young entrepreneur be doing right now? What should they be doing right now? I'd say finding their passion. 
I mean, one of the, the most frustrating things for me in grad school, after having started several companies that asked people, what are you going to do after grad school? They're like, oh, I'm going to be an entrepreneur. I'm like, oh, great. What's your company? I don't know. I'm just going to be an entrepreneur. An entrepreneur was code for, I don't want to go get a real job because it sounds a lot more fun doing a startup. As I said to you earlier, I thought I was done being an entrepreneur, but I found something that I was, again, passionate about and felt like I needed to solve. And so what I tell people who, who think the startup world is where they want to be or the entrepreneur world is where they want to be, go get as much experience as you can until you find that what you're passionate about and then go make that jump into building that. But in the meantime, learn about finance, learn about the legal world, learn about networking because no one builds a business all by themselves. You've got to have a, a network of people you can reach out to who, who help you. And if you don't understand the concept of product market fit yet, read everything you can on that before you start your company, because that's going to be essential to figuring out how to build it. All right, next one. What's the best compliment you've ever gotten? For me, I I think in the business world, it's watching our customers teach us how to use our platform. And as I, I said, we go out, we knew what we wanted to build it, what we wanted it to do. And now I get customers coming back going, yeah, but can I get it to do this? And, you know, you have to catch yourself. Oh, of course you can. Yeah, that's what we meant. Right. But what it means is your customers have gone beyond what you wanted them to do. They've really ingrained themselves into the platform and found new ways to use it. And then the fun thing there is we can take those new ways to use it and share it with the rest of the community so they can benefit on it. Last one. What's been your favorite job you've ever held? Bar none, hands down. And this is no insult to the Boodle team I have. It was being a platoon leader in the Army. I was 21 years old when I walked into that job. I had 60 men and women who were the sons and daughters of America. And I was empowered to take them on some of the most dangerous training. And ultimately, although I never did with them take them into combat, you knew that you could take them into combat at any point in time. And to have that trust is phenomenal. And what's even more phenomenal is you're doing a lot more than just teaching them to shoot straight. You're their marriage counselor. You're their PT mentor. You're the person who's responsible for challenging them each and every day to become the next best version of them. And at the same time, you're learning from them. They've been doing their job. When I walked into the Army, I had no experience. I had people in my platoon had been there 10, 15 years. So bar none, that was the singular greatest job I've ever had. The second best is obviously Boodle. The team I have here, um, while I haven't taught any of them to shoot straight, although that might change on the next company retreat, we may be doing that. I get to do all those other same things. I get to challenge them all to become the next best version of who they are. And every single day, they challenge me to do the same thing. Just don't do one of those like tomahawk things. Like those things terrify me. You want a bunch of people to get into the same room (laughs) right next to each other and throw axes all around. Like, no, I what's, just, worse, what's worse yeah. is these are always at a bar. That. That's what I was going to say. At always a at a, like, it's dangerous enough just doing what you said, Taylor, but now let's add vast amounts of alcohol to it. I can't understand why people do this. I'm like, please never take me to one of those. All right, I do have one more question. What are you doing to be the next version of yourself right now? So as I said, I I interact with the team as often as I can because they challenge me. I used to love to read. And about two years into starting Boodle, one of my investors asked me if I had any regrets about starting a company in my 40s. 
one was the less family time that I had. It was hard initially with, with a lot less family time. But the other thing that really bothered me is I wasn't reading as much. I read every day, but I was reading blogs. I was reading things that were very pertinent to the job we were doing. And he turned me on to Audible. And I love Audible. I, I always have like six books going at a time. I always keep, I'm not a big fiction reader, but I always keep one big fiction book there to just kind of throw things up. But I have things outside of AI, machine learning, and everything else. And then the last thing I do is spend as much time with the family. And if there was lemonade to be made out of the lemons of the pandemic, it's that I get to work from home. We finish this up before the end of the hour. I'm going to get five minutes to go play cars with my four-year-old. And then when my daughter gets home from school, I get to spend five, 10 minutes finding out how she was. And before the pandemic, you didn't get to do that. You left the house at eight in the morning and you got home at six at night and that interaction wasn't there. And so as much as I can do to find outside of the you know, 18 hours a day, I typically put into Boodle. And that's every, it's something every entrepreneur has to do to, to make sure they, ma- they maintain their own sanity and help the people on their team. Yep. I hear you on that. Well, Sean, thanks so much for spending time with us talking shizzle today. If people want to find you, reach out to learn more about Boodle, what's the best way to do that? I am at Sean, S-H-A-W-N, at Boodle, B-O-O-D-L-E dot A-I. And thanks for having me today. Well, hey there. That was fun. I love how much mind-blowing and mind-opening shizzle our guests bring to us with every episode. We hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as we did. Make sure you hit that subscribe button on your favorite podcast player so that you don't miss a beat of the Talking Shizzle podcast. And if you're listening on Apple, be sure to let us know what you thought and leave us a review. We'd love to hear from our listeners so that we can bring you all the good, juicy business growth shizzle that you would like to hear about. Get in touch with us and follow along at creativeshizzle.com or email us at podcast creativeshizzle.com. Until next time, keep making your shizzle happen. Mm -hmm.